Russia threatens more airstrikes against Ukrainian cities. The G7 pledges its continued support for Ukraine and demands Russia end its invasion. It's Wednesday, October 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rumpa Shinoy. Coming up, doctors are trying to prevent misinformation about abortion from being given to Spanish-speaking immigrants. Preying on people who don't even speak English, who already have low resources and fear. This is a real problem. Also, the debate over the Massachusetts ballot question on allowing some undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. I want to know that every motorist is educated on the rules of the road. I oppose rewarding somebody being in the country illegally with a driver's license. And the sour, the pain that comes with mortgage rates, which are now approaching 7%. In sports, the Bruins season begins tonight in Washington. Sunny today in the 70s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine, occupied by Russian forces, is again running on backup diesel generators. NPR's Nathan Rod reports from Lviv. The United Nations nuclear watchdog says the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine has lost all external power for the second time in five days. Electricity is needed to cool the plant's nuclear reactors and for other safety mechanisms. The International Atomic Energy Agency's Director General, Rafael Grossi, wrote on Twitter, quote, This repeated loss of off-site power is a deeply worrying development, and it underlines the urgent need for a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the site. The IAEA has been asking for a demilitarized zone around the nuclear power plant, which has seen shelling over the last few months. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Lviv. President Biden used the term Armageddon last week when he spoke about Russian President Putin and his threats to use nuclear weapons. NPR's Giles Snyder reports Biden says he doesn't think Putin will use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. President Biden's initial Armageddon remark last week raised eyebrows around the world since then U.S. officials say there is no new intelligence suggesting the imminent use of nuclear weapons. In a CNN interview, Biden said he does not think it will happen, but just by talking about it, Biden said Russian leader Vladimir Putin is being irresponsible because the use of a nuclear weapon could lead to a horrible outcome. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. President Biden will visit three western states starting today. He'll campaign for Democratic candidates in California and Oregon. And today, he'll name a new national monument in Colorado. It's a rugged area used to train soldiers in World War II. Two top Senate Republicans were in Georgia yesterday to support U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker. There are allegations the anti-abortion candidate paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion and threatened to kill his family. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler reports. Florida Senator Rick Scott and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton came to a strip mall parking lot on a Tuesday to implore Republican voters to get out and vote for Herschel Walker. The stakes are high as flipping Georgia's seat could also flip control of the U.S. Senate. Here's Senator Cotton. Herschel Walker is going to help build a Republican majority in the United States Senate. It's an uphill battle as Walker has trailed in nearly every major poll, and that's before the latest controversy. The two face off in a televised debate Friday on Georgia's coast in Savannah. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Carrollton, Georgia. Walker faces incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock in the general election. A jury in Florida will begin deliberating the fate of a gunman who shot and killed 17 people at a Parkland High School in 2018. The man faces life in prison or the death penalty. The decision by the 12-person jury must be unanimous. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy.
The city of Boston is unveiling a new master plan for the future of the Boston Common. It's the oldest public park in America. The makeover will be paid for in part by the $28 million sale of the Winthrop Square Garage. WBUR Simone Rios reports city leaders now have a clearer picture of where to spend that money. Liz Visa of the nonprofit Friends of the Public Garden says people can be disappointed after entering the park from the well manicured garden. Now, with a master plan that Visa says is the most comprehensive in Boston Commons for century history, she says the park will better match its historical character with its contemporary needs. It's a plan of action that builds on looking at all of those different lenses, history, use, landscape character, and how it can grow in a sustainable way in the, in the land and world of climate change and, and more people coming to the city. The plan includes a basketball court, an expanded visitor center, and a dine-in restaurant overlooking the Frog Pond. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Children's hospitals in Boston are seeing a rise in patients because of the flu. Public health officials with the city say the number of cases is up with the start of the school year. There's also an uptick in COVID cases. They're urging parents to get their families vaccinated against the flu as soon as possible and to stay up to date on COVID boosters. The presidents of Wellesley, Smith, and Mount Holyoke Colleges are joining other women's college presidents in condemning the Iranian government's violent crackdown on protesters. The protests followed the death of a 22-year-old woman while in custody of the so-called morality police. She was arrested for allegedly wearing her hijab too loosely. The college presidents call the crackdown one of many threats to women's well-being worldwide. Members of Maine's congressional delegation are pushing back against the red listing of lobster. That designation urges consumers to avoid lobster because of the risks that lobster gear poses to endangered North Atlantic right whales. Kevin Miller reports the fight affects a key part of Maine's economy. Representative Jared Golden and Senator Angus King say they plan to introduce bills that will cut off all federal funding to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Maine's political leadership has locked arms with the state's economically powerful lobster industry to denounce the Seafood Watch red listing as being without any scientific basis. They point out that no right whale injuries have been linked to Maine lobster gear in decades, and there has never been a death tied to the industry. But in a statement, the Monterey Bay Aquarium says the Seafood Watch ratings, quote, reflect a management failure and that the lobster industry is out of compliance with the Endangered Species Act and other federal laws that protect right whales. I'm Kevin Miller. Tonight, the Worcester City Councilors take up a petition to change the name of some city streets. The UMass Chan Medical School submitted the petition asking that the city change the name of a road that runs through its campus, as well as two other roads. School officials wrote that Plantation Street, Parkway, and Terrace connote oppression and recall the painful history of slavery. It's 707. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, hosting an employment fair October 13th at Boston City Hall Plaza, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Start a career with purpose, upward mobility, and generous benefits. For more information on how you can join in building a better tea, visit mbta.com careers. The Bruins begin their season tonight on the road. They'll skate with the Washington Capitals in D.C. The Bees will have their home opener on Saturday. Sunny today with a high in the 70s, mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall into the 50s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Rain starts in the afternoon, and it could get heavy overnight. High tomorrow in the lower 70s. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 708.
WBUR supporters include CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Russia accuses Ukraine's military intelligence services of being behind the bombing of a strategic bridge that links it to Crimea and announced the detention of eight people. The attack on a bridge Vladimir Putin symbolically opened himself four years ago is what prompted Russia to unleash a barrage of missiles across Ukraine. NPR's Nathan Rott is in western Ukraine in Lviv. Uh, Nathan, uh, bring us up to date about what's been happening today. Yeah, so as you said earlier today, the FSB, Russia's intelligence service, announced that they had arrested eight people that they say were involved in that bombing of the bridge, which connects the Russian-occupied Crimean Peninsula to Russia. They claim that strike, which caused part of the bridge to fall into the sea, was directed by Ukraine's military intelligence service. Ukraine's government has not claimed responsibility, and they are dismissing these Russian claims. But Putin has warned that any strikes on Russian-controlled territory, like the illegally annexed Crimean Peninsula, would lead to retaliation like the kind we saw here on Monday and Tuesday. Are there any more missile strikes today? You know, so far today, there's been a lot of air alarms across much of the country, but no, not the widespread missile strikes that we've definitely seen over the last few days. And those really have shaken a lot of people up here. I had dinner with one of our longtime translators here last night in Lviv, and he was saying the recent missile strikes felt like February 24th, the start of the war all again. And they were in some ways even scarier because he lost cell phone reception. He lost power after hearing explosions, which did not happen at the beginning of the war, at least not here in Lviv. And during an air alarm we had here yesterday, I saw a bunch of people in a bomb shelter, which is something I hadn't really seen in the last couple of times I've been in Ukraine because sirens have become such a way of life here that many people are just sometimes ignoring them. That is not the case anymore. Have Ukrainians mentioned what the Russians were targeting? Yeah, so civilian and energy infrastructure. Ukrainian officials say very few military objects were hit or even targeted in all these missile strikes. Many of the missile strikes happened at power stations, at thermal power plants, substations, and it's been knocking out power to a number of places. Uh, Here in Lviv, large parts of the city have been without power over the last two days. Uh, Yesterday, the mayor urged people to stock up on water because of potential disruptions to the city's water supply. The concern, obviously, for people here is that winter is nearly here. Temperatures are already dropping into the 40s at night and without electricity. uh, It's going to be difficult for some people to heat their homes, to charge their phones, do all the things that we all do in a modern world. And yesterday, another group of seven nations held an emergency meeting about this escalation where they heard from uh, President Zelensky, Ukraine's president. Uh, What came out of that? Yeah, I mean, what you'd expect. There were more pledges of unwavering support. There was a warning of severe consequences for Russia if it uses a chemical, biological, or nuclear weapon here, which there have been growing concerns about. As you mentioned, Zelensky, he did speak. He appealed for modern air defense systems, which he's been doing since the start of the war. And he also asked for independent monitors along the Ukrainian-Belarusian border, because there has been some troop movements on that front. And there are are concerns that Putin is going to lean on Belarus to take a more active approach in helping Russia in this conflict. NPR's Nathan Rott is in Ukraine. Nathan, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. We're going to continue discussing Russia's escalations in Ukraine and the growing pressure 
on Western allies to do more to help Ukraine defend itself. With us is U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General David Deptula. Now retired from the service, he is Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, General. Well, thanks, Layla. Good to be here. So I want to start with just how dangerous this moment is, this new phase of Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, um, it, it is dangerous, but it's not unexpected. Um, and there are a variety of aspects to your question, but let me mention a few that I think are key. Um, first, Putin's expectation that his invasion of Ukraine would result in its rapid collapse, mm -hmm. as everyone knows by now, proved spectacularly wrong. Almost everything about that initial Russian invasion collapsed. Um, second, when he pulled his forces out of the north and regrouped, because of the Russian military's poor performance and the Ukrainian military motivated by Putin's existential threat, supplied with weapons and critical intelligence by the West, Russia's military really struggled under right. the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, third, that counteroffensive going as well as it did shocked the Russians and became a turning point in the war. It's what caused Putin to take the step of mobilization. And as you know, that's not going well. Mm -hmm. uh, and while the war had already turned Putin into a political pariah externally, Russia's military failures are now testing Putin's domestic strength. Right. Therefore, Putin's trying to find a means to garner support domestically by demonstrating that he's still strong, by making nuclear threats and striking with air and missile attacks across Ukraine. So his hope is that Ukraine will break under the pain of this bombardment, uh, but he seems unable to understand the unbreakable will of the Ukrainians. But he's also shown no sign of backing down that he is in this war. And so will these strikes become a feature of Russia's strategy at this point? Well, he's got some problems there because uh, due to the uh, intense use of his weapons to date, um, he's running low on uh, munition stocks, not to mention uh, the personnel that uh, he needs to continue to feed the fight. It's important for your audience to know that um, Russia has lost more uh, of its military personnel in eight months in Ukraine than it did in over a decade in Afghanistan. Um, so, yeah, he has the potential to continue. I mean, he's not out yet. Um, and he's going to do, as I mentioned, uh, he's going to take actions to try to, to show that he is strong and he's standing up to those um, who are edging him on uh, inside the country. Uh, but there's the reality of, of supplies of munitions and aircraft to be able to do this. You describe uh, a man trying to show strength and possibly be in a desperate moment, and a desperate leader like that can be dangerous. He's made nuclear threats. And how serious do you take those? And could what the U.S. and NATO do next provoke Putin to follow through? Um, well, it's a great question, um, Layla. Uh, first, uh, he does have to be taken uh, seriously, but... It's also important to understand that the risk of escalation is ever present regardless of what actions the West takes to support Ukraine. Putin's already shown that he'll manufacture a pretext when his adversaries are too smart to give him one. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I like to remind people that during the Vietnam War, 
The Russians supplied North Vietnam with 100% of their fighter aircraft, all of their surface-to-air missile systems, all of their tanks, and they were even on the ground. Uh, both Russia and the U.S. had nuclear weapons at that time, and that didn't affect the conventional conflict, so why should it today? His nuclear saber rattling uh, can increase risks, but it really can't offer Russia any edge in its confrontation. Uh, how, how does one create more damage than what's been created in Mariupol? You know, just quickly before we let you go, at this phase of the war, could the U.S. and NATO be drawn into doing more than providing weapons and defense systems? Um, If you mean actual use of NATO and U.S. forces, I think it's important that um, uh, we we don't engage in that level of support. Um, uh, But, you know, I, I tell you what, getting weapons that matter to the Ukrainians is critical to both their survival and success. Retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General David Deptula, now Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies in Washington, D.C. Thank you. You bet. NASA's mission to move an asteroid has apparently been an earth-shattering success. For the first time ever, humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. That's the space agency's Lori Glaze. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, the test proves there's at least one way to defend Earth from an incoming space rock. This was NASA's plan to save the world. Take a spaceship the size of a golf cart and smack it into an asteroid the size of an Egyptian pyramid at 14,000 miles an hour. Step one. Steer the golf cart into the asteroid. Not exactly easy. Both are moving really fast and space is really big. But they did it. And we have impact. In late September, the little spacecraft, known as DART, splatted like a bug on the windshield of its target asteroid called Dimorphos. Dimorphos actually orbits a bigger asteroid called Didymos, which brings us to step two. Researchers had to figure out if the splat did anything. Or, in technical terms, did DART change the time it takes Dimorphos to go around Didymos? At yesterday's press conference, NASA scientists announced that they'd measured the change at around 32 minutes, which is good? So, period change of 32 minutes is spectacular and exciting. Nancy Chabot is a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, where the mission is based. She says the change in time means the path of Dimorphos around Didymos also changed. Dimorphos just now orbits ever so slightly closer to Didymos than it used to previously. So, job done. Asteroid moved. Not that it really matters this time. Neither of these asteroids are on a collision course with Earth. But NASA's Lori Glaze says the space agency now wants to step up its search for asteroids that are, because the sooner humanity finds them, the easier it'll be to move them out of the way. The more time we have for that little nudge, uh, the better off we are. That's why NASA now wants to build a new space telescope just for asteroid hunting. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. What is the world's most vaccinated city? I'll spare you the internet search. It's in Brazil. How did almost everyone in a city overwhelmed by COVID wind up getting their shots? You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, doctors say more of their Latina patients are reporting being targeted by groups that are trying to spread disinformation about abortion. And Baltimore prosecutors have dropped all charges against Adnan Syed, who was the focus of the podcast Serial. He spent 22 years in jail for the murder of his ex-girlfriend. It's 7.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Love is Calling at the ICA. Yayoi Kusama's Infinity Mirror Room offers endless reflections and the illusions of space. ICABoston.org. President Biden wants to bring supply chains back to the United States. He says it's good for jobs and national security. We've seen what happens when we become dependent on other countries for essential goods. Well, a few years ago, China's President Xi Jinping said almost exactly the same thing. He launched China's dual supply chain strategy. Did it work? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It'll be sunny today with a high of 73. Tonight, it'll grow cloudy and temperatures will fall to a low around 56. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 71. There may be some high winds and there's a chance of rain. More showers on Friday and maybe a thunderstorm with gusty winds and a high near 69. It's 50 degrees in Boston. As old as time True as it can be That's Angela Lansbury from the 1991 Disney film Beauty and the Beast. The actress was 96 when she died yesterday. She's also known for her roles in the films Gaslight and The Manchurian Candidate and as the main author Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote. Lansbury also won four Tony Awards for Best Actress in a Musical. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, providing instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live, online, or in-person programs for reading, comprehension, and math. LindaMoodBell.com slash NPR. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Doctors and reproductive rights advocates say they've seen a surge in Spanish-language misinformation about abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Some worry this may discourage members of the Latino community from seeking medical services. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. Liz LeBron works at the Latino Anti-Disinformation Lab, a media watchdog group. Just after news leaked in May that the Supreme Court planned to overturn Roe v. Wade, LeBron and her colleagues noticed a spike in misinformation on abortion being shared in Spanish on social media. Abortion was not really on our radar. And all of a sudden, after the leak, it started popping up. And it has not slowed down. She says the misinformation she's seeing runs the gamut, from posts that say abortion is no longer legal in a state, where in fact it remains legal, to those that falsely say the procedure is not safe. I saw another post that talked about a clinic, and this is their wording, that they killed three women 
because they provided them with abortion care. She says that these kinds of falsehoods are being shared by some popular Spanish language accounts. I mean, I'm looking at a post right now that has 230,000 followers. And this misinformation isn't just spreading on social media. We're hearing it from community activists on the ground. We're hearing it from allies who we work with in the field where we're doing our work. That's Lupe Rodriguez, executive director of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. We know for a fact that many people are confused about what the laws are in their own state or where they can go for information or health care. And that is making it much easier to spread misinformation. Rodriguez says in some cases, this isn't necessarily malicious. Laws are changing in many states and people are just sharing rumors that they think are true. She and others say that abortion opponents are capitalizing on the confusion by putting out even more disinformation. Liz LeBron says she's seen disinformation that seems designed to galvanize voters. She cites, for example, a post that targets Val Demings, the Democratic candidate for Senate running against Republican Senator Marco Rubio in Florida. There is a group, Floridianos con Marco, and, you know, they posted to their 11,000 followers that Val Demings wants to fund abortions with uh, taxpayer money until the moment of birth. And it's like, oh, goodness. Demings is on the record saying she supports the right to abortion up to the viability of the fetus, which doctors generally put at about 24 weeks of pregnancy. Ana Suset Valladares is with California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. She says her group has traced some abortion disinformation to crisis pregnancy centers located in low-income immigrant Latino communities. She says these centers sometimes offer services like free diapers or formula, but their mission is to dissuade pregnant people from getting an abortion. I know for a fact that they will say things like, you know, it's going to impact your health, your ability to have children in the future. It's going to impact your your chances of getting like cervical cancer, for example. So this is what community members have told us. Dr. Melissa Simon is an OBGYN at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. She says widespread disinformation is creating fear among the immigrant Latina patients who come to her seeking abortions. Even though Illinois is an abortion safe haven, she says patients have told her they fear that getting the procedure will result in legal jeopardy. I see patients that are fearing the repercussions of getting an abortion, not to just themselves, but to their family and loved ones. Simon says she recently saw a pregnant teenager who came to see her with her mother, who is an undocumented immigrant. The daughter was scared that if she got an abortion, it might somehow end up getting her mother detained or even deported. Simon worries that such fears will keep people from seeking medical care when they need it. For example, if they're having complications from a medication abortion or from an ectopic pregnancy that puts their life at risk. When you're trying to care for somebody, this rampant disinformation and preying on the most vulnerable populations that we have, people who already have low resources and fear, this is a real problem. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Prosecutors in Baltimore have dropped all charges against Adnan Syed. He was convicted in 2000 for the killing of Hey Min Lee, his former girlfriend. The case was the subject of the hit podcast, Serial. Here's NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Silkus. The court recently vacated Adnan Syed's conviction after prosecutors said they had new information about two alternative suspects thanks to a year-long investigation. The prosecutors then had 30 days to decide if they want to pursue a new trial against Syed or drop the charges altogether. They chose the latter due to some recently tested DNA that showed that Adnan Syed was not part of the crime. 
The state's attorney for Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, held a press conference. Adnan Saeed, his DNA was excluded. That testing was done on clothing items of Lee's that had never been analyzed before, including a pair of her shoes that contained someone else's DNA. Heyman Lee's family has made it clear that this has been a very painful time for them. In remarks to the court last month, Lee's brother, Young Lee, said they felt betrayed by prosecutors and they felt blindsided by all this new information. At yesterday's press conference, Mosby noted that Lee's family is reliving an unimaginable nightmare over and over again. Equally heartbreaking is the pain and the sacrifice and the trauma that has been imposed, not just on that family, but Adnan and his family, who together spent 23 years in prison for a crime as a result of a wrongful conviction. Mosby said Tuesday that her office had actually received the DNA results last week, but waited to drop the charges against him because they were hoping to speak with Lee's family first. According to prosecutors, they received no response from her relatives as of early yesterday afternoon. But the family's lawyer told NPR in a statement that, quote, the family deserves more than an email sent to their attorney four minutes after news of the dismissal broke in the media. Mosby is declining to say if the recently found DNA belongs to any other known suspects in Heyman Lee's murder. Marilyn Mosby is pledging that her office is actively pursuing this case and looking for Heyman Lee's true killer. Anastasia Tsoulikas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, the impact of rising mortgage rates. They're now near 7%, adding nearly $1,000 a month to the mortgage payment for a typical house. It's 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says he doesn't think Russian President Vladimir Putin would use tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine, despite Putin's threats to do so. In an interview with CNN, Biden says Putin can't continue to continue to suggest that using those weapons would be a rational decision. Russian authorities say they're holding eight suspects in connection with the bombing of a bridge linking Russia to Crimea. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow says Russia points to the bridge attack as a reason for this week's missile attacks in Ukraine. According to Russia's Federal Security Services, the FSB, its agents arrested five Russian citizens as well as two Ukrainians and an Armenian national suspected in the bridge blast. In a statement, the FSB said the individuals had helped plant 22 tons of explosives in plastic film rolls in a truck in the Ukrainian city of Odessa. The statement said the vehicle then transited several other countries before entering Russia and exploding on the Kerch Bridge Saturday morning. A senior Ukrainian official dismissed the FSB findings as nonsense sense. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused Ukraine of carrying out a terrorist act and responded with a series of massive Russian airstrikes across Ukraine that began Monday. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The Russian missile attacks killed at least 20 people and wounded more than 100 others. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
A top credit agency says it's concerned the Massachusetts economy could be hurt by climate change. S&P Global Ratings last week published a generally positive evaluation of the state's fiscal health. The report said the state has a solid plan in place to mitigate damage from flooding and climate change. But it noted flood risks in the state puts coastal cities in a precarious position. Two more eBay employees have been sentenced in a harassment case involving a Natick couple. They're among seven former workers who pleaded guilty. The company criticized eBay in an online newsletter. Authorities say eBay employees sent the couple threatening messages. They also had packages with disturbing items sent to their homes. Four women from the past are being recognized today in Duxbury. They are the Lewis sisters, Ella, Lillian, and Beulah. The three opened a camp for black youth in the coastal town back in 1934. 19th century writer Cora Wilburn will also be recognized. She was one of the most prolific female American Jewish writers of her time. State Representative Josh Cutler says two bridges are being named in honor of the women. This is a way to kind of recognize some voices from our past that not always gotten the the recognition they deserve and to to recognize their accomplishments and hopefully, you know, spark a conversation for folks, you know, as they drive across these, these bridges. The Lewis Sisters Bridge is located on Tremont Street. The Cora Wilburn Bridge is located on Congress Street. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. The Bruins begin their regular season tonight. WBUR's Dan Guzman has a preview. The team has a new head coach in Jim Montgomery. He replaces Bruce Cassidy, who was fired last June after six seasons. Longtime Bruins center David Krejci is back from playing in Europe, and team captain Patrice Bergeron has signed on for at least one more year. But Fluto Shinzawa from The Athletic says it's time for some new stars to shine. I think the team is still wondering who is going to be part of that next generational core, so to speak. I think they're looking at this as one last run because at their ages, Bergeron and Krejci, who knows how much longer they have in the league. The Bruins open the season tonight in Washington. Their first home game is Saturday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. It'll be sunny and in the low 70s today, overcast tonight in the upper 50s. Then tomorrow, mostly cloudy with temperatures around 70. There's a slight chance of showers in the afternoon and a good chance of rain that might get heavy into the evening and overnight. We'll probably see showers on Friday, too. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm May Martinez in Los Angeles, California, where a racism scandal has engulfed City Hall. Three council members were secretly recorded having a conversation filled with racist, anti-black, and anti-indigenous language. And just a warning, we're going to hear some of that in this story. The council members are now facing calls to resign, including from President Biden. Here's NPR's Adrian Florido. 
The L.A. City Council president, two of her council colleagues, and a union leader, all Latinos, were heard on the tape denigrating black people. They also insulted indigenous immigrants from Mexico, and they discussed ways to increase Latino political power in the city while taking it away from African Americans. Yesterday, a large crowd came to City Hall for the first scheduled council meeting since the tape emerged. For two hours, they berated the council and demanded that the three members heard on the tape, President Nuri Martinez, Kevin De Leon, and Gil Cedillo, resign their council seats. Lori Candinas, a local black activist, was appalled that Martinez had called a black child a monkey on the recording. Nobody's child in this chamber is a monkey. Nobody. That language, unacceptable. The anti-blackness, unacceptable. The anti-immigrant language, unacceptable. Suyapa Maldonado said it had pained her to hear the Mexican-American council president calling indigenous Mexicans short, dark, and ugly. I come from an indigenous background, she shouted, and we're being trampled on by the people we elected. They have to resign. Redeem Robinson, a local pastor, said he was insulted by parts of the recording in which the council members discussed ways to gain political power for Latinos while prying it away from black people. We have people on this city council who are conspiring to disenfranchise black voters. I got a problem with that. None of the three council members recorded on the tape have resigned their seats, though few people in L.A. think their careers will survive this. The recording has unleashed a reckoning likely to alter the trajectory of L.A. politics forever, says Manuel Pastor, who directs the Equity Research Institute at the University of Southern California. The recording, he says, has been a deep affront to the values many Angelinos hold dear. This is a city that has prided itself on coalition building. Especially in the three decades since the police beating of Rodney King, a black man, sparked the L.A. riots and exposed deep racial divisions in the city. Communities have worked hard to heal those wounds. And now this. These Latino political leaders were thinking about enhancing Latino political voice by diminishing black political prospects. That's really damaging to the trust that needs to be built between communities for successful struggles for social justice. Outside City Hall on Tuesday, Anthony Bryson, an activist, said the work to rebuild that trust will need to start again. I hope that the black and brown solidarity within the community can be strengthened. And we can see that the community members are here for each other, even if our leadership is not. On City Hall's steps, he was connecting with other local leaders who, he said, share that same goal. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Los Angeles. With mortgage rates hovering around 7%, some people are giving up on the dream of buying a home. Monthly mortgage payments for a typical home are now nearly $1,000 higher than they were at the start of the year. NPR's Chris Arnold reports. These days, Andrea Johansson and her husband Mike are not living their best life. So over here is the camp trailer that we're staying in. It's a temporary thing, but for now they're living crammed into a small camping trailer at Andrea's parents' farm in western Massachusetts, right across from a barn with more than 100 chickens. They're kind of calm right now. I mean, they were going bonkers. It starts at like 4.30 in the morning. 
you're trying to have Zoom calls for work in the afternoon, and um, when the sun starts going down, they, they start all over again. They start squawking. The couple thought they'd be in a newly built house by now, but with supply chain delays, it's not finished. And so what was supposed to be a quick stay in the camper between homes has dragged on. And now at today's rates, it looks like getting a $360,000 mortgage is gonna cost them about $800 more every month, which is gonna be tough. Well, we're living in the trailer because we can't afford to live anywhere else. Our belongings are in storage, and that's almost $1,000 a month. Mike's a CPA, and Andrea works as an engineer. They say they'll be able to afford the higher mortgage payment, but it means they can't spend or save money on other important things. I'm 41 years old. I need to save for retirement, you know? Some people are having to back out of buying a house at all. In Colorado, 32-year-old Hillary Tallarud Ho had also agreed to buy a new home. But with the higher rates, she and her husband can't qualify for a mortgage anymore. We were told we'd have to pay off my husband's credit card and have to have $100,000 down. There's no way we had that. The couple lost a $1,000 deposit they had put down, and they could have lost more. Luckily, the builders were more than understanding. Like They didn't need to according to the contract we had signed, but they returned the $5,000 earnest money. The higher mortgage rates are putting home ownership out of reach for millions of people. The pace of sales has fallen for seven months in a row, and it's no longer a frenzied housing market with bidding wars and a bunch of offers on every home. Daryl Fairweather is the chief economist at Redfin. What we're experiencing now is like a hangover from this party in the housing market that was going on for the last two years. And that party was fueled by cheap debt from the Federal Reserve. And now inflation is ending the party. The Fed kept rates super low during the pandemic, and that helped drive home prices up massively, between 30 and 40 percent in just two years. Now to fight inflation, the Fed is raising rates, and that's thrown cold water on the housing market. As far as home prices, though, they've fallen a bit the past couple of months, but Fairweather doesn't see big price drops ahead. We're forecasting that home prices will be flat next year, year over year. Housing looks pretty resilient right now. You know, a recession might change how sturdy it is, but for now it's been incredibly sturdy. The biggest factor propping up prices is that we just don't have enough homes. After the last housing crash, many builders lost money and we didn't build enough for a decade. Mortgage rates going up and down doesn't do anything to solve the housing supply shortage. That's gonna be there. Back by the chicken barn, Andrea and Mike Johansson are hoping that rates fall before their house finally gets built so they can lock in a lower rate. Man, we're hoping by the time we close, because they keep they keep pushing us out. They push us out again to the end of November that maybe they'll come down a little bit between now and then. Maybe. Maybe. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to happen either. But there's wishing, hoping and praying. Chris Arnold, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Chinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, a ballot question asks Massachusetts voters to decide whether to keep a state law allowing some undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. And in our next hour, a growing scandal in Canada over unaddressed allegations of sexual assault by Hockey Canada. Now the country's governing body of hockey is stepping down. 
In your forecast, a great day for today's International Walk, Bike, and Roll to School Day. We'll have clear skies and it'll be in the low 70s. Tonight it grows overcast and temperatures drop to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, overcast, windy, and around 70. There's a slight chance of showers in the afternoon and a good chance of rain in the evening and overnight. It's 51 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. Now in business news, a company that turns recycled chopsticks into furniture and other home goods is opening a new factory in Charlestown. Chop Value makes its products with chopsticks it collects from local restaurants. Elaine Chow is the owner of the factory. She quit her 20-year career in nonprofit management to focus on sustainability and creativity and to go back to her roots. It's been a way for me to connect in with, for example, this network of 100 Asian restaurant owners and business owners and have been able to really connect in with those folks. And that's just felt really kind of special to me. This is Chop Value's first franchise on the East Coast. It's 744. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, hosting an employment fair October 13th at Boston City Hall Plaza, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Start a career with purpose, upward mobility, and generous benefits. For more information on how you can join in building a better tea, visit mbta.com careers. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Question four on the Massachusetts ballot this fall asks voters if they want to keep a new state law that allows undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Massachusetts became the 17th state to adopt such a law back in June. It's set to go into effect next year. WBUR's Walter Wuthman begins our look at question four in Waltham at the home of a woman with a deep personal stake in the issue. (laughs) My name is Soyla Lopez, and I'm from Guatemala. Lopez sits at the kitchen table of her Waltham apartment. Her home is neat, decorated with throw pillows and pictures of family. Lopez came to the United States illegally over 30 years ago, escaping Guatemala's violent civil war. For many, many years, it was very difficult for me to live in this uh, country with no status. Her immigration status also meant she could not obtain a driver's license. That made it hard for her to get to work and take care of her kids. It was so difficult for me to take my children to see the doctor, to take my children to the hospital. Lopez says she was also afraid of talking to police without any official identification. And that became a problem when the father of one of her children became abusive. I was trying to go away, but I have no no driver license to go away. I have no, no car. I have no how to put myself uh, safe. Lopez says her partner came home one night and struck her in the head, knocking her unconscious. She later called 911 and police arrested him. Lopez then went to court and secured a special visa for victims of crime who cooperate with police. She says that visa and the driver's license it allowed her to secure changed her life. She's no longer afraid of being stopped by police. I have something on my hand that I can give it to them and tell this is me and I be allowed to be on the street. Lopez is now fighting efforts to repeal the law, allowing other immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. 
and many in law enforcement agree with her. It just makes a whole lot of sense. That's South Hadley Police Chief Jennifer Gunderson. I mean, from my perspective, I want to know that every motorist out on the roadway is educated on the rules of, of the road. You know, I want to know that every motorist on the roadway has insurance. Gunderson points to data showing hit-and-run accidents fell in California and Connecticut after their legislatures passed similar laws. When those other states have allowed undocumented persons to get licenses, they come out by the thousands to get educated, to get insured, to have their cars inspected. They come out by the thousands. But opponents believe providing undocumented people with licenses rewards illegal activity. Maureen Maloney and her organization Fair and Secure Massachusetts are spearheading the campaign to overturn the law. Yearly for, I don't even know how many years, I've been testifying against the driver's license for illegal aliens bill. Maloney says she's motivated by personal experience. Her son Matthew Denise was killed in 2011 by a drunk driver who was in the country illegally. She believes the ability to apply for a driver's license will encourage more people to cross the border. I oppose rewarding somebody being in the country illegally with a driver's license, with allowing them to work. I I oppose rewards for them across the board. Opponents also fear giving licenses to undocumented people could lead to voter fraud. But Secretary of State Bill Galvin says there are already safeguards that prevent people who aren't citizens from registering to vote. That includes immigrants who are here legally and already able to obtain driver's licenses. Back in Waltham, Lopez says she has family, friends, and neighbors who can't wait to apply. Well, it's many, many people. They wish and pray to have at least a driver's license. The Pew Center estimates there are a quarter million undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts. That means if a majority of Massachusetts voters vote to keep the law, thousands will be eligible to apply for licenses in July. But if a majority votes no, the law will be repealed, and they will be blocked from getting licenses once again. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. This was the first in a series of reports on Massachusetts ballot questions. You can also learn more by visiting WBUR.org. Back on the radio later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what's on deck. Good morning, Tiziana. Wednesday, Rupa. Good morning. I know. Humpy Rupa. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So listen, I will say we did a debate um, on Radio Boston last Friday on Question Mm -hmm. 4. People can find it at our website, and we'll do one this coming Friday on Question 1, which is often known as the Millionaire's Tax. Mm -hmm. So another resource there. Today we have Deb Becker. Uh, from the newsroom. Really tough story about a, the short version is a man who was jailed and sus- suspected uh, of killing his mother, known mental health issues. Overnight, they try to refer him to Bridgewater State. Bridgewater State denies the referral. He winds up in a jail and dies by apparent suicide. Uh, um, and so we're looking at the breakdowns in our system mm-hmm. around the intersection between mental health care and incarceration. Yeah. And Deb's going to work with us on that. I love how much she follows the <clears throat> nooks and crannies of stories and then you know shows how they illustrate the systemic problems. Exactly. And it's so complex, but Deb talks you through it in a way where you really do understand, sorry, <clears throat> the bits and pieces of it. So I'm really looking forward to learning from all her. All right. Today. I took up your time. I'm sorry. Not at all. More, but no, there's always more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Rady Boston, today at 11 and 3. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Many of the shows that make it to Broadway started out in regional theaters. That includes all of the plays in August Wilson's The Pittsburgh Cycle. They were first seen by audiences in Pittsburgh, Chicago, and elsewhere. Now there's a new Broadway production starring Samuel L. Jackson and John David Washington. Come on, Doka. Oh, you know this one. The process of developing plays has been refined over the last half century, but that process is changing. For our series, The Next Stage, NPR's Elizabeth Blair takes a look at how new plays make it from the page to the regional theater stage. When COVID hit, playwright Terry Guest was given a two-week furlough from his job at a coffee shop in Chicago. And I thought, when will I ever get two weeks off of work again? Never. So I'm going to write a play. And uh, there was very little pressure at the time. So I just sat down and wrote whatever was on my heart. And it ended up taking a little bit longer than two weeks because I ended up having a little more time than I anticipated. The play is called The Magnolia Ballet. It's the first in a trilogy. They all take place in the swampy part of Georgia where I grew up. And there's lots of magic there, lots of ghosts, lots of mosquitoes. Guest has written other plays. He's also an actor. So he called his theater friends and asked if they would give his new play a Zoom reading. Everybody was sort of like, oh, this is this is pretty good. This is pretty good. And one of the directors who I invited to this Zoom reading gave the script to the Phoenix Theater. Bill Simmons at the Phoenix Theater in Indianapolis liked it. He gave it to Chris Handley at the Alleyway Theater in Buffalo. I read it and thought, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. The Williamston Theater in Michigan also liked it and got on board. And bingo, they had enough to get money from the National New Play Network. If three theaters that are members of the network agree to produce the same new play, they're eligible for funding. It's called a Rolling World Premiere. Rolling World Premieres pays $7,500 to a theater regardless of their budget size. Nan Barnett, executive director of the National New Play Network, says there's also funding for playwrights to travel to those premieres. So a playwright really gets to see that work in the hands of different directors on the bodies of different actors in different budget sizes, in vastly different communities, different theater sizes. The Alleyway in Buffalo has a budget of $3 million. It has two theaters. The larger one seats up to 99 people. The Alleyway's building has been a fixture in downtown Buffalo for decades, says Executive Artistic Director Chris Handley. It's a 1941 Greyhound bus station. And then after the bus station left, like in the 70s, It became a police precinct, 
And then for like 10 years, it was a police precinct on this side, the front half and the back half was a theater and together. And then the police moved out across the street and now it's a full theater. In a typical season, the alleyway does three to four new plays, a Christmas carol and a short play festival. The Magnolia Ballet opened their fall season. My father isn't affectionate. My father isn't affectionate because his father wasn't affectionate. And his father wasn't affectionate because his father wasn't affectionate. And his father wasn't affectionate because it was unsafe to be affectionate and soft and malleable. I like to say that the story is 100% true, even though it's not all fact. The Magnolia Ballet is an emotional story that's also funny. But for some audiences, a new play by an unknown writer is not an easy sell, says Handley. That's what keeps me up at night, right? Because it is people of a certain age who are coming to see theater. And the kind of theater that we are doing is truly not something that they probably are interested in. Handley is one of only two full-time employees at Alleyway. He says applying for grants is 80% of his job. There's not a lot of money in regional theater. The pandemic shutdowns made things worse. Two longtime incubators for new play development closed, the Sundance Theater Lab and The Lark. And the Humana Festival, one of the most important showcases for new plays, isn't coming back. Robert Fleming is head of Actors Theatre of Louisville, which produced the festival for more than 40 years. It's not a sustainable model based on how we've moved into our 21st century. Low pay, aging audiences, theater's precarious. So there's not a lot of incentive for playwrights to work in regional theater. And that's where new plays come from. Chris Jones, theater critic for the Chicago Tribune and the Daily News, says many of them are looking elsewhere. I think that one of the most underreported phenomena is the detrimental effect television has had on the theater. Television is snapping up playwrights, Law and Order, the flight attendant, made, shameless, the Americans have all used playwrights. I mean, every time I look at credits for a TV show, I see one of my favorite playwrights. It happens with almost every show. And when they're writing a TV show, they're not writing a new play. The American theater doesn't support a living for a playwright. Tanya Saracho used to be a playwright. She also founded and ran a theater company, Teatro Luna, in Chicago. She now works in TV full-time. She's written for Girls and How to Get Away with Murder and created the show Vida for the Stars Network. You're a full-on agent of chaos. No, it, like, follows me. It's a scientific fact. I can't escape drama. <laughs> Saracho has escaped theater drama, but she still loves it. I always say I divorced my first wife and I miss her all the time, but I'm still not coming back. <laughs> she makes far more money in TV, but she says theater prepared her for screen work. She says playwrights are especially good at crafting character. And when she's staffing a TV writer's room... I do look at playwrights a lot. Because you've had to stand on your own writing plays without a writer's room, you know? Is there a TV show you'd love to work on? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I would love to write anything. Playwright Terry Guest. I would love to write for Issa Rae. Issa, if you listen to NPR, baby girl, hit me up. I would love to write on Succession. And Succession needs some gay flavor in there anyway. The National New Play Network hopes Terry Guest keeps writing plays for regional theater. The network even gave him a special award for the Magnolia Ballet of $500. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia says it has detained eight suspects in the bombing of a bridge to Crimea that triggered Moscow's ongoing stepped-up assault on Ukraine. It's Wednesday, October 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a deal brokered by the White House last month with railroad unions now appears at risk, with one of the unions voting no on the agreement. Our members have made it very clear to us that the lack of paid sick days is a very significant issue for them. Also, the leadership of the governing body of hockey in Canada is stepping down over a failure to address allegations of sexual assault. Plus, remembering Angela Lansbury. And this hour, the Bruins begin their NHL regular season tonight. We'll have a preview. Sunny today with a high in the low 70s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is clarifying his comment last week about Russian President Putin risking Armageddon if he decides to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Since then, U.S. officials have said Biden's comment was intended as a warning, and there's no new intelligence to suggest that Putin would actually use a nuclear bomb. But Biden says that Putin's saber-rattling is irresponsible. The idea that a world leader of one of the largest nuclear powers in the world says he may use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, and the whole point I was making was it could lead to just a horrible outcome. Biden spoke to CNN. Russia continues to strike Ukraine with missiles and drone attacks. Ukrainian officials say nearly a third of the country's energy infrastructure has been damaged by Russian attacks this week. Separately, U.N. officials say the embattled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine is again on backup diesel generators. It lost all of its external power supply. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Brussels today. He's trying to ramp up arms contributions to Ukraine. Terry Schultz reports defense ministers from NATO allies are discussing how to keep up their own weapon stockpiles while also equipping Ukraine. The recent attacks by Moscow all over Ukraine have made clear Kyiv will likely need added military and financial support for a long time. The Ukraine Defense Contact Group, set up by the U.S. in April, brings together countries beyond the 30 NATO allies to coordinate further military assistance. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg acknowledges allies are having to reduce their own arsenals for the time being to help Ukraine. But that has been the right thing to do uh, because it is important for all of us that Ukraine wins the battle. But NATO also wants allies to increase their stockpiles from the levels maintained before Russia's war on Ukraine. So countries are now looking at how to combine arms purchases and speed up manufacturing times. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Today, a Florida jury will begin deliberating the fate of the gunman who killed 17 people at a Parkland High School in 2018. NPR's Greg Allen reports Nicholas Cruz faces a sentence of life in prison 
or the death penalty. In his closing argument, Prosecutor Mike Satz detailed for jurors Cruz's actions planning the murders and then carrying them out at Parkland High School. Jurors once again watched a surveillance video showing the gunmen firing into classrooms and hallways, shooting some victims repeatedly. Defense attorney Melissa McNeil tried to focus the jury on Cruz's troubled personal history, one that began before he was born, when his mother abused drugs and alcohol, leaving him, according to experts, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You now know that Nicholas is a brain-damaged, broken, mentally ill person through no fault of his own. The jury has two options, give Cruz a death sentence or life in prison. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Treasury Department will investigate Florida's governor who sent Venezuelan migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Senator Ed Markey asked the department to investigate whether Governor Ron DeSantis used COVID relief funds to fly the group from Texas to the vineyard last month. Markey says the group was sent under false pretenses as a political stunt. Most of the migrants were later given shelter at Joint Base Cape Cod, but they've been moved since then. Unionized graduate students at Clark University are set to vote today on a potential first contract with the Worcester School. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. Clark University Graduate Workers United and the university reached a tentative contract agreement last Friday. The deal was struck less than a week after union members walked off the job. Exact deals of the pact have not been released, but the union had been seeking higher pay and more affordable health care. The university released a statement last week saying its goal had been to come to terms that recognize the value and contributions of its graduate students. Those students voted to unionize back in March. Today's contract vote is scheduled for noon. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Fausto Menard. A Beverly-based search and rescue team is coming home today after a week in Florida. The crew from Massachusetts Task Force 1 was on the Florida Gulf Coast rescuing people from Hurricane Ian. Community aid groups are urging state residents who need help heating their homes this winter to apply for help now. That comes as energy prices for natural gas and oil are expected to soar this winter. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. An individual in Massachusetts can get fuel assistance if they make up to $42,000 in gross income. For a family of four, that cap is $81,000. Elizabeth Baraby is a member of the Massachusetts Association for Community Action, which helps distribute federal assistance. It's going to be a tough year, but we, you know, I can't instill enough into everyone to really, you know, check out our guidelines. Again, we've never run out of money. So people should not fear that there's not enough money to go around. The federal government approved extra money to help with energy costs this year. Massachusetts residents have until mid-March to apply for assistance through MassCap.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Boston Common will soon get a bigger visitor center, more trees, and, most importantly for a lot of visitors, more bathrooms. The improvements are part of a new master plan for the nation's oldest public park. The plan also includes new sports fields and courts and a restaurant by the Frog Pond. It'll be paid for in part by the $28 million sale of the Winthrop Square Garage. It's 806. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, 
the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. The puck drops tonight on the Bruins' regular season. They'll get things started tonight against the Capitals in Washington. Sunny today with a high in the 70s, mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will fall into the 50s, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Rain starts in the afternoon, and it could get heavy overnight. High tomorrow in the lower 70s. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston at 8.07. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Last month, a possible rail worker strike threatened the economy before the White House brokered a tentative deal. The 12 unions that represent about 115,000 workers are now voting on that agreement, and they all have to say yes for it to actually become an agreement. And this week, one of them said, no deal. NPR's politics reporter Jimena Bustillo joins us now to tell us uh, what this means for the agreement. So we all knew it wasn't necessarily a done deal, but Jimena, what happened? I mean, there was always the risk that unions could vote against it. Even after the deal was reached, some members were still picketing. The thing to remember is that there are 12 different unions here involved in the rail system, and each individual union has to vote to accept or reject the deal. The first four unions voted yes. But the deal did not address a major sticking point for many of the workers, which is the very strict limits on sick leave and other absence policies. And this is just one of the reasons the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees Union voted no. And it's a really big union, too, representing more than 11,000 workers. And, you know, I remember President Biden taking a bit of a victory lap over this deal, but now it looks like he'll have to walk it back. Well, last month, we saw members of Biden's cabinet help broker this specific tentative deal. Things had stalled after months of negotiations, so Labor Secretary Marty Walsh worked literally through the night with unions and management. And here's what the president said from the Rose Garden the morning after they came to a tentative deal. Together, we reached an agreement. You reached an agreement that will keep our critical rail system working and avoid disruptions of our economy. This was really important for him because the midterm elections are coming up and he didn't want a big strike that could make some goods hard to find or more expensive. All right, so what happens now? I mean, are we looking at a strike now? Well, the union's rejection of the tentative agreement means that now they're in what's called a status quo period. So it's back to the bargaining table for this one union. The union has already reached out to management to renegotiate the lack of paid sick leave. Here's the union's chief negotiator, Peter Kennedy. We're going to go back to the table and we're going to talk to the railroads about increased paid sick days because our members have made it very clear to us that the lack of paid sick days is a very significant issue for them. The group that represents the railroads for bargaining said in a statement that it's disappointed, but they also said that there's no immediate risk of disruption. These talks can go on for some time and the union can't strike before November 19th, so it really is not an immediate threat. Meanwhile, voting for the seven other unions is expected to last into next month. Kennedy also told me that it is customary for all railroads to strike if one of them does, even if all the other ones reach a deal. But there's no telling in this case if they all would. And he said their goal is not to strike. Everyone wants to reach a deal before then. All right, so November 19th, that's the date to keep in mind. Now, what's on the line here for getting an agreement? 
Yeah, we have to remember that railroads transport 30 to 40 percent of goods in this country. When this issue first became a threat last month, there were major concerns over food and agriculture products because it would have coincided with harvest season. A November strike is not any better. It comes right ahead of the holiday season. The White House is also downplaying this vote. They say that there is still lots of time to reach a deal and that there is no immediate risk of a strike. Also on the line is the president's reputation for being pro-labor. He has long touted his support for unions and thanks union workers for helping him win the election. So this is a big test and also a test of his ability to fix supply chains and address inflation. So there's a lot on the line. NPR's Jimena Bustillo, thanks a lot. Thank you. For more on a possible railway strike, we turn to Justin Rosniak. He's a co-host of the podcast, Well, There's Your Problem, about engineering disasters. Justin, sick leave is the sticking point in negotiations to avoid a strike. Why do railways reject this seemingly simple request? So this has been uh, it's it's been a big problem for a long time, um, especially since, you know, over the past, uh, let's say, five or six years, you had workforce attrition. Um, you know, you did have... Uh, an amount of sick leave, an amount of time off that was predictable. Um, But as railroads have adopted this thing called precision schedule railroading and mostly adopted the bad parts of it, not the good parts, um, all of a sudden everyone's on call all the time. What what is that precision precision adjusted railroading? So your precision scheduled railroading is essentially you, you, you start to run trains rather than the old fashioned way where, you know, you you run a freight train, it goes from one rail yard to the next one, the cars get, you know, switched around each time. Now you run the train a much longer distance all at once and that increases your average train speed. That means you have better equipment utilization in terms of locomotives and railroad cars. It's really good for efficiency in a lot of ways. Um, the issue is it also requires you to invest in infrastructure and and do things that keep the trains running reliably. And that's the hard part that railroad executives didn't want to do. They wanted they wanted to get the good stuff, the, the good stuff that made money and not the stuff that made them spend money. You know? and, and what are the bad parts? Yeah, what are the stuff that makes them spend money? Uh, you got to put more tracks down. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta put more tracks down. You gotta, you have to invest in stuff like signals. You have to, you have to have, you know, you have to have stuff that makes the trains run reliably. And and is this putting a lot more on the workers? A lot more, uh, just wear and tear. A lot more hours. A lot more on them to make sure that this happens efficiently. Absolutely. I mean, it's been, um, it has been, and especially in the last five years, but it has been a very long process that got us here. Um, you know, it, it has it has very much um, put the burden on workers to you know start showing up at weird hours to to take over like these 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 trains that are not running as reliably as they used to, or these trains that are like. Uh, Bigger, say, right? Uh, I mean, is it me, Justin, or or just trains bigger than they were before? Absolutely, trains did get much bigger in the past couple of years. Um, there's this new concept, not this new concept, but there is this this concept of distributed power, which means you know trains uh, can be like three miles long, where they used to be like a mile long, um, and that has been part of the operating model now for probably two or three years now, at least here on the East Coast, on the West Coast, it's been a thing for a longer amount of time. 
Justin, is this why railroad workers are drawing a line in the sand over these negotiations? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it has become impossible to have a normal life and also work for the railroad. Um, and it's, uh, frankly, I think it's impressive that the Brotherhood of Maintenance Away and, uh, uh, employees is is uh, voting this down because they're not the ones who have the big scheduling problem. It's uh, Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and uh, BLET, and they're the, the or excuse me, Smart TD. Those are the last people to vote. Those are the people who have the really big problem. Um, you know, some people have talked about this as like the, uh, you know, the golden handcuffs, um, you know, because you have, you have great pay, you have great benefits, you have so on and so forth. You can't use them. Um, and and so this is this is why railroad workers have have, have really uh, a lot of folks are not happy about this uh, agreement. Um, and you know it was it, it it staved off the strike, but it did not solve the problem, the uh, tentative agreement. Um, and and it's 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 it, it, it is a um, you know it's a situation where you know the, these these workers. You know they deserve more. Uh, they deserve to be able to take time off. Uh, and the current system of taking time off, even though they have more time off under this agreement, the current system they have is, um, um, you know, it, it's very easy for the railroads to deny them the time off that they are owed. <laughs> That's Justin Rosniak, co-host of the podcast. Well, there's your problem, Justin. Thanks a lot. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Canada's national sport is embroiled in a scandal. The entire leadership of Hockey Canada has now stepped down. For months, the sport's governing body has contended with revelations about sexual assault allegations and slush funds worth millions used by Hockey Canada to settle lawsuits. Emma Jacobs has more from Montreal. The unfolding scandal at Hockey Canada has become the subject of wall-to-wall coverage. Breaking news about an exodus at Hockey Canada. Pressure on the organization, which fields Canada's national teams, but is also the governing body for amateur hockey, has been growing for months. Canadian news outlets have revealed multiple settlements made by Hockey Canada in sexual assault cases. These include one claim by a woman alleging she was assaulted by a group of eight members of the 2018 junior national team. Canadians have also learned the organization created slush funds to settle lawsuits from the registration fees of kids and recreational league players. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau welcomed the resignations, but said the fact that they had taken so long showed the organization had not understood the gravity of the situation. There's work to do to transform the culture at Hockey Canada, but today was an important first step. Just last week, interim board chair Andrea Skinner had defended the leadership when she answered questions from a parliamentary committee investigating the scandal. Suggesting that toxic behavior is somehow a specific hockey problem or to scapegoat hockey as a centerpiece for toxic culture is, in my opinion, counterproductive to finding solutions and risks overlooking the change that needs to be made more broadly. The outcry over her remarks was immediate and Skinner resigned over the weekend. The criticism of Hockey Canada has come not just from fans, but from sponsors. The early rising parents. The backyard rink builders. Longtime sponsors like Canadian Tire, Nike and Tim Hortons have cut back or pulled their support. But this is not going to be the end of the chapter. More revelations are expected from an independent investigative group created by Hockey Canada, and there are ongoing police investigations. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, as the Russian invasion continues to threaten Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine, those living around the remains of the Chernobyl nuclear plant recall their experiences. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. In person on October 24th, hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Harvard's early wealth was rooted in slavery. They're taking that head on. Meet a family who traced their lineage back to Darby Vassal. His parents were enslaved by a prominent Harvard benefactor. And after his freedom, Vassal emerged as a prominent leader in Cambridge's black community. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. We are definitely getting into the heart of leaf peeping season. The website The Foliage Report says we're into peak color in northern Maine, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and western Vermont. A little part of the Berkshires is in high color, while the rest of Massachusetts is ranked as moderate or low color. So you still have some time to plan a trip to check out the fall colors. If you're doing that today, it'll be sunny with a high of 73. Tonight, it'll grow cloudy and temperatures will fall to a low around 56. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 71. There may be some high winds and there's a chance of rain. More showers on Friday and maybe a thunderstorm with gusty winds and a high near 69. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. The Russian occupation of Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has experts running through worst-case scenarios. I mean, just this morning, the plant lost external power for the second time in five days. And Ukraine is, of course, no stranger to nuclear accidents. In 1986, the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl suffered a catastrophic meltdown. NPR's Yulian Haida visited the site and has this report. There are only two places in the world that have first-hand experience with a level 7 nuclear event. That's the most serious measure of a disaster that experts use. And one of those places happens to be in Ukraine. I'm pulling up to the exclusion zone around Chernobyl. It's a nearly 60-mile-wide territory that's been restricted to the public since a nuclear reactor exploded here in 1986. The disaster released radiation into the air all over Europe and will poison the land here for the next 20,000 or so years. 
This is one of those few places on Earth, alongside Fukushima in Japan, that became a living experiment for what would happen if things went wrong at a nuclear plant. I'm scared. I'll be honest, very, very scared. That's Serhii Biruk, the head of operations here in Chernobyl. Now, he's not scared of the radiation here. That's a known quantity by now. What he is scared of is Russian negligence around nuclear sites that make it unknown. The Russians are very good at trolling. Trolling, getting a rise out of Ukraine and the world. Biruk thinks that's what's going on with the Russian occupation of nuclear sites. Are they idiots? People are dying. The human toll of Russia's invasion is something Biruk and his colleagues saw firsthand. Russia occupied the Chernobyl exclusion zone for more than a month after invading Ukraine in February. Now Biruk's team is trying to get things in Chernobyl back to normal, at least as normal as it can be in one of the most irradiated places on Earth. In the months since Russia retreated, they're still discovering the destruction left in their wake. Stolen car radios, tea kettles with parts left behind. If they don't know what a tea kettle or microwave is, then forgive me. They don't know what a nuclear power plant is. His colleagues sit around a table eating fish soup. <laughs> They're a jovial bunch, but they sit here not having much to do. Much of their staff is on furlough. The state budget is all directed towards the war. Valentin Rizhuk sits across from me. He made the soup and is the chief safety engineer here. My employees call me and ask if they'll ever get paid or if they should even find other work. Usually, thousands of people work in Chernobyl maintaining the vast area and controlling radiation levels. Having experienced occupation themselves, they can hardly imagine the stress people in Zaporizhia are under. There, Russia is still in control. Same goes for the hundreds of people who are allowed to live in the area. 20 miles away, but still within the zone, I meet Sofia Arkadyevna at her home, which is surrounded by a massive vegetable garden, her main source of food. Like other pensioners, she's allowed to live out her remaining years in her childhood home, even though it was condemned after the Chernobyl meltdown. Why are they terrorizing us? It's like Zaporizhia has to either belong to Russia or nobody at all. The 77-year-old great-grandmother used to be the mayor of this village. All I ever wanted was for my grandchildren to see the fruits of their labor. And in Ukraine, they had it all. But Russia wants to take it all away with their nukes and their armies. There isn't a meltdown at Zaporizhia yet, but international inspectors in Zaporizhia have said that conditions at the plant may lead to one if the area isn't demilitarized. I asked Sofia if she ever thought people would be talking about another possible nuclear meltdown in Ukraine. No, I couldn't even dream of it when the day of Armageddon comes. She and others I meet here think that Ukraine can handle its own nuclear energy safely, that it can even be good, if not for the war. But it's out of their hands, they say. All hope is on Russia to retreat from Zaporizhia, just like they did from here months ago. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Chernobyl, Ukraine. 
Now we remember a beloved star of stage and screen, Angela Lansbury. Her family announced her death yesterday. She was 96. Lansbury's career spanned over seven decades. Moviegoers first saw her in 1944's Gaslight when Lansbury was just a teenager. And whom are you going to the musical with? Gentleman friends, sir. Oh, now you know Nancy, don't you? That gentleman friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies. Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself when I want to. She got her first of three Oscar nominations for that role. Now, Lansbury was often cast as women much older than she actually was. She reflected on this with Fresh Air's Terry Gross in 2000. I hated it. I mean, I didn't enjoy it, and I fought it, and I tried hard. I would go to the studio heads and say, look, don't make me play this part. But they would sort of say, well, if you will play that part this week, we'll let you do such and so next week kind of attitude. So I would end up doing it. And um, it all added to my training, really. That training served her well from her celebrated role as a communist spy in 1962's The Manchurian Candidate to her Broadway work, which included playing the cold-blooded Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. What a rush, what a hurry. You gave me such a fright. I thought she was a ghost. Her most iconic role began in the 1980s in the CBS mystery drama Murder, She Wrote. The series ran for 12 seasons and made Lansbury a household name. She told Terry Gross that playing Jessica Fletcher, the mystery novelist who solved a murder every week, embodied all she wanted in a female role. She was uh, valiant and uh, liberal and uh, athletic and all kinds of good stuff that women are of a certain age and are not given credit for. And now Angela Lansbury's credits speak for themselves. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, the defense team has rested in the trial of the gunman who pled guilty to carrying out the Parkland, Florida school shooting in 2018. A jury will now decide if Nicholas Cruz will be sentenced to death or spend life in prison for the murder of 17 people. And the Supreme Court in Kentucky hears arguments today in a case that will decide whether the state can move forward with a program to send more than $100 million in tax revenue to private schools. It's 829. The Paycheck Protection Program helped small businesses keep their workers employed during the pandemic. PPP loans were potentially forgivable, and most of them have been forgiven, despite concerns about fraud. The PPP program seems to have resulted in billions of dollars of fraudulent loans that have ultimately turned into grants. Why that's happening, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden tells CNN he does not believe Russia would use tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine. He also says Russian President Vladimir Putin can't continue to suggest their use would be rational. NATO's Secretary General agrees. Russia knows that the nuclear war uh, cannot be won, must never be uh, fought. That's Jens Stoltenberg speaking earlier today in Brussels at the start of a two-day meeting with NATO defense ministers. 
An energy company in Poland says it's discovered a leak in a section of pipeline that carries oil from Russia to Germany. It's separate from the Nord Stream pipelines, which were damaged by explosions in recent weeks. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. Polish pipeline operator Pern says it detected a leak on a portion of the Druzhba pipeline, one of the world's longest, which carries oil from central Russia to Europe. The leak was discovered on a line west of Warsaw that carries crude oil to Germany. A Pern spokesperson says Polish state fire services have secured the area. This part of the pipeline carries oil to a refinery in the German city of Schwedt before it flows to Berlin. Putin calls the Nord Stream leaks an act of international sabotage. Earlier today, the head of Russia's Gazprom said repairs to the Nord Stream pipelines will likely take more than one year to complete. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Question four on the Massachusetts ballot will ask voters whether to keep or overturn a law that allows undocumented immigrants to apply for driver's licenses. As WBUR's Walter Rothman reports, the fight is becoming one of the most contentious of the November election. Opponents believe allowing undocumented people to get driver's licenses would encourage more illegal immigration. But supporters say the law makes the roads safer for everybody, regardless of status. Here's South Hadley Police Chief Jennifer Gunderson. And I think that allowing drivers that we already know are on the road to be properly licensed improves the safety of the community that, you know, I I had sworn to protect and serve. A yes vote would preserve the law and allow it to go into effect next year. A no vote would overturn it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Boston could have collected tens of millions of dollars over the past three years with a proposed tax on high-end property sales. That's according to a new report from the left-leaning Institute for Policy Studies. The tax plan is supported by Mayor Michelle Wu. It would apply a 2% tax to real estate sales over $2 million. The report finds that sales in six luxury buildings alone would have yielded close to $20 million in tax revenue since late 2019. The Rhode Island School of Design is returning more than 30 stolen objects to Nigeria. They include a Benin bronze called Head of the King. Benin bronzes were stolen by the British when they invaded what is now Nigeria in the late 19th century. Museums around the world are working to return the bronzes and other artifacts stolen during colonial wars. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? The Bruins will play their first regular season game tonight under new head coach Jim Montgomery. The Bees open the regular season on the road tonight against the Washington Capitals. And in your forecast, it'll be sunny today in the low 70s, overcast tonight in the upper 50s. Then tomorrow, mostly cloudy with temperatures around 70. There's a chance of rain in the afternoon and a better chance of rain in the evening. It's 55 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash npr.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Layla Faldin in Washington, D.C. Kentucky Supreme Court is considering a case today that will decide whether the state can redirect would-be tax dollars to private schools. It's a debate that once again pits advocates of privatizing schools against people worried about the underfunding of public education. Jess Clark of member station WFPL will be in the courtroom today and joins us now on Skype. Hi, Jess. Good morning. Hello. So why don't we start with you just telling us more about this case? What's happening in the courtroom today? Sure. Well, many people have heard about school vouchers. That's a program in which the state pays for certain families to attend private school. The stated rationale being that lower income families deserve the same access to private school as wealthier families. But school vouchers are actually not legal in Kentucky. The state constitution pretty explicitly forbids using tax dollars on non-public schools. So this case is about a program private school advocates have created that is very similar to a voucher program, but different enough, they say, that it doesn't violate the constitution. Okay, so before we get into details of what each side is arguing in court, give us the context here about what's at stake in this case and why people are so invested. Well, it gets back to a debate that's played out in many states about the value of privatizing K-12 education. Vouchers and tax credit scholarship programs are legal in many other states. Some states even have both, Indiana and Louisiana being two. And proponents of these programs often refer to themselves as being for, quote, school choice. And they argue that all parents should have the right to opt out of the public school system, just like wealthy families who can pay for private school. On the other side, advocates of public education say a big reason parents even want to opt out is because for decades, lawmakers have underfunded public schools. Uh, In Kentucky, for example, if you adjust for inflation, spending per student is still significantly lower than it was in 2008. So opponents are worried that this program will just further drain funds away from students uh, and from public schools. So that's the bird's eye view. Let's get into how this program in Kentucky would work and how advocates say it differs from vouchers. So this program is a tax credit scholarship fund at the risk of putting listeners back to sleep because that sounds pretty dry, but (laughs) stick with me. (laughs) Here's how it works. Uh, First, people or corporations make a donation to a scholarship fund that is managed by a third party. And in return for the donation, the donor gets a tax credit of up to 97% of their contribution. So essentially, these donors contribute to a scholarship fund in lieu of paying state taxes. Then low and middle income families can apply to use the scholarship funds on educational expenses, including private school tuition. And advocates of the tax credit program say because the money never actually enters state coffers, the state is not technically funding these private schools and the program is therefore legal. And what's the other side saying? Well, opponents say this program will take even more money out of the public school system and create a system of haves and have-nots. They call this program backdoor vouchers. And a lower court judge actually agreed with them, saying the mechanism for collecting the funds is irrelevant because the program ultimately amounts to state support for private schools. Advocates of the program appealed that decision, and that's why the court is hearing the case today. All right, and you will be in the courtroom. That's Jess Clark with WFPL. Thank you so much for your time and your reporting. Thank you.
A jury in Florida is expected to begin deliberations on whether the gunman who killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School gets the death sentence. Nicholas Cruz has pleaded guilty to the murders. Yeah, defense attorneys argued that Cruz, though, should be spared and given life in prison without the possibility of parole instead because of his troubled history and his mental health. NPR's Greg Allen has been following the trial. He joins us now from Miami, and some of what you'll hear in his report might be disturbing. Greg, how will the jury decide whether Cruz deserves the death penalty? Well, under Florida law, jurors can hand down a sentence of death if they find that aggravating factors outweigh mitigating factors. And prosecutors detailed several aggravating factors they think that apply here. Prosecutor Mike Satz says videos Cruz recorded on his cell phone, social media posts, and even Internet searches showed that he planned this attack on the school months in advance. And what he did was to murder children at school and their caretakers. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he planned to do. That's what he wanted to do. And that's what he did. And there are other aggravating factors. The fact that multiple murders were carried out, that that they were done in a school, and that they were done in a way that was especially, quote, heinous, atrocious, or cruel. On that point, the jury heard disturbing testimony from survivors about the terror they experienced that day. Jurors also watched surveillance videos showing Cruz returning to victims he wounded and shooting them again, killing them. Now, as we mentioned, Cruz's guilt has already been established. He pleaded guilty. What's the case uh, his defense has made for giving him a life sentence? Well, I've spoken to uh, experienced lawyers who say this is one of the most difficult death penalty cases for the defense they've ever seen in Florida. Yesterday, the jury once again viewed a 14-minute surveillance video from the school that recorded the entire attack. It's not been made public, very disturbing, but it depicts Cruz methodically shooting into classrooms and down hallways and then reloading his AR-15-style rifle several times with new magazines. Several weeks ago, the jury visited the building at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School where the shootings occurred, where they saw bloodstains, bullet holes, and other evidence of the attack. Defense lawyer Melissa McNeil has tried to move past the shooting, saying by pleading guilty to the murders, Cruz is accepting responsibility. She's tried instead to focus on Cruz's troubled history that began before he was born, when his mother abused drugs and alcohol while she was pregnant with him. But how would that help him avoid the death penalty? Well, McNeil spent a lot of time yesterday in her closing argument recounting all the problems Cruz had in school and in his interactions with others. She talked about testimony from experts who said Cruz suffers from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She said he never received a proper diagnosis or treatment because everyone from his adoptive mother to school officials dropped the ball. And if at least one juror opts for life, the death penalty then is off the table. McNeil acknowledged, though, to jurors that vote would require courage. Your individual moral decision must not be based upon what you think that this community wants or what you think anybody else wants. This is your individual moral decision. Many of the family members of those who've died have been outspoken about their desire to see Cruz receive the death penalty. Throughout the trial, many of them have been in the courtroom. There's been some difficult days, and I'm sure they will be there when the uh, jury finally comes in with the verdict, whenever that is. NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Greg, thanks. You're welcome.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up, a preview of the Bruins' NHL regular season. It starts tonight with their first regular season game under new head coach Jim Montgomery. Clear skies today in the low 70s. Tonight it grows overcast and temperatures drop to the upper 50s. Tomorrow overcast, windy, and around 70. There's a slight chance of rain during the day and a good chance of showers in the evening. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And CIC Innovation Campus, committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at cic.com enterprise. Now in business news, after more than 60 years in business, a furniture store in Wood Worcester is going out of business. Rotman's Furniture is expected to close by the end of the year. Its owner, 83-year-old Steve Rotman, plans to retire. Rotman's store manager, Barbara Kane, has been with the company for 23 years. I've literally met thousands of people walking through these doors and have enjoyed that opportunity. Kane says the company employs 44 workers. Three life sciences companies are moving into lab space in Malden. Exchange 200 is the largest life sciences and lab development in the city. Discovery Life Sciences, Outer Biosciences, and an unnamed advanced materials company are expected to move in by the end of next year. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Hillside School, offering a structured environment with a 5 to 1 student to teacher ratio for boys grades 4 through 9. Hillside graduates confident young learners. Open house October 19th from 1 to 3. Virtual option available. Hillsideschool.net. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Bruins begin their new season tonight as they visit the Washington Capitals. Last year, the Bees were bounced in the first round of the playoffs. So how will it go this year? For a preview, we're joined by Fluto Shinzawa, a senior writer for The Athletic who covers the team. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. Thanks so much for being here. So to start out, the Bruins have a new head coach this season, Jim Montgomery. Can you remind us why the team fired the former coach, Bruce Cassidy, and what you think we should expect from Montgomery? Yeah, it's a bit of a curious thing, right? The the team that makes the playoffs six straight years under the former coach, Bruce Cassidy, and they decide that he's not good enough for them. Um, but if you look at it, Rupa, there, there are a couple of issues at play, most importantly, that they felt that Bruce was, he was a firm coach. He was very demanding. He was very direct. And with some players, especially the younger players, it, it didn't really go over so well. Um, it, it's just the nature of coaching these days where a lot of these young players have not heard that kind of negativity. Uh, and I don't think that that really resounded very well with some of the players and with management. And also, the team had stagnated offensively. This was always a best-in-show defense. But in terms of offense, they were kind of middle of the pack. So with Jim Montgomery, they're really hoping for two things. First, a positive communicator, and then second, somebody that can really uh, open the window, so to speak, in terms of creating offense. Patrice Bergeron, our team captain, the 37-year-old, decided not to retire and signed a one-year deal. What do you think we can expect from him this 
season. You look at the play and you look at the history. I don't see any kind of drop off. And that was, uh, I'm sure that was critical in his thinking that this could have been it. He he has three young children at home and he had accomplished everything that he had wanted to accomplish. But he felt that his health was good. He did undergo surgery on his elbow, but he's he's good to go. I think he has one more push in terms of trying to to go for a championship. Uh, and then for himself, just the level of play that he was satisfied with. His health is good. He can still perform at a high level. He he, he loves his, his job. So uh, that's why he came back. Uh, okay, let's look at two specific players. Okay. Linus Allmark, Jeremy Swayman. They evenly split goaltending duties last year. Do you think one of them will take the lead this year? Uh, remains to be seen, Rupa. What we've seen throughout the league is a, a real trend towards splitting the workload. This is a demanding job physically and mentally. So I think that Linus and Jeremy have a history of sharing the net well. They get along well. Uh, they're good friends. Uh, they develop this this post-game hug routine that everybody seemed to like. And it's a different situation this year. Last year they had Tuka Rask kind of in the corner, and they were both looking over their shoulders in terms of Tuka was coming off of hip surgery, a very accomplished goalie, and then four games in, just his body couldn't take it, and he had to retire. So this is the show for Linus and Jeremy. They're ready to go. Um, at this point, they've been pretty even during training camp. I predict that there will be a pretty even split, uh, but I'm sure once the, the games get more critical at the end of the season, if one of the players gets hot, that's the goalie they'll go with. Anything else you saw during the preseason that you're looking for this upcoming season? Yeah, there's some new players that are coming in, um, namely Pavel Zaka. He was traded from New Jersey. And then to start the season, it looks like he's going to be on an all-check line with David Krejci and David Pasternak. That's a line that's going to have to carry the day offensively because Brad Marchand, uh, he, he's out uh, with, with hip surgery during the offseason. Who knows when he'll be back late November early December, but that's a critical, critical player in Brad, so they're, they're going to have to pick up the offensive slack. Do you happen to have any predictions you would share? Uh, well, a lot of it depends on some of their injury situations. As, as noted, Brad is going to be out. Charlie McAvoy, who critical player on defense, is also recovering from shoulder surgery. So it's those are two very, very important players for the Bruins that they're going to have to to look for, for other contributions elsewhere. So if they can get out of the gate and kind of tread water here until those two players return, they should be okay. But the rest of the division around them uh, has gotten better. So it will be very competitive. I, I would imagine that they'll be in the hunt for the playoffs. Uh, beyond that, who knows? But as it is every year, so much of this depends on health. So many factors at play. Okay, Fluto Shinzawa from The Athletic. Thank you so much for speaking with WB Wars Morning Edition. My pleasure. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, what it takes to get a petition on the ballot in order to reveal the identities of big political contributors. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is back here in studio to fill us in on what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Good morning, Rupa. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, Rupa, today our show is kind of this mix of some really hard things happening locally and in, in the world and some really delicious things. I'll start with the hard things. 
we are going to be looking at places in the country where there's little to no maternity care, mm. which if you're pregnant or have given birth or thinking about it, it's going to be one to listen to. Also in Mississippi, there was a shooting of a 15-year-old, a teenager, um, in a parking lot by police, mm-hmm. which is not really rated very much news. We're going to delve into that and also get an update from Haiti on what's happening there. But then we move to some delicious things like imagine baking a sheet pan full of yumminess. So okay. we're going to talk about sheet pans and pears with our resident <laughs> chef, Kathy Gunst. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Deepa's face. She's lighting up at the mention of all of this. I will be listening I, just because I know it's going to be wonderful. Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. The Paycheck Protection Program helped small businesses keep their workers employed during the pandemic. PPP loans were potentially forgivable, and most of them have been forgiven, despite concerns about fraud. The PPP program seems to have resulted in billions of dollars of fraudulent loans that have ultimately turned into grants. Why that's happening, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny and in the low 70s today, cloudy and in the 50s tonight. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston at 8.52. This week we're looking at money, politics, and whether campaign donors can be secret Santas who spend big but you never know it's them. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. And by UKG, HR and workforce management solutions designed to turn a business from a workplace into a work of art. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio. We've been exploring a measure on the ballot in Arizona next month to require nonprofits that spend big money of uncertain origin on statewide and local races to reveal which people or companies are spending the most to influence campaigns. Today, how a ballot project like this takes a kind of sustainable energy. At the edge of the high country town of Flagstaff, Buffalo Park would be a hiker's paradise if not for the on and off drizzle on this first day of autumn. In a gazebo with picnic tables, I meet up with volunteers who help put Arizona's campaign finance disclosure initiative onto the November ballot. And I'm looking at the headgear on Arizona's number one, tippy-top, most effective volunteer gatherer of signatures. And the hat would attract the children. And then the parents were trapped. Kind of looks it- like a chef hat. It says, Stop Dark Money has our logo on the front, and then there's dollar bills sticking out all around the top of it. Kelly Gibbs, with the hat, is a retired elementary school teacher whom you might mistake for Betty White's much younger sister. Diane McQueen, another volunteer, is also pretty darn good at collecting signatures. (laughs) They say, uh, you mean Charles Koch, or you mean George Soros, and I'd say, yes, here's sign. (laughs) She also coordinated hundreds of other volunteers with four million registered voters to canvas in Arizona. Volunteers alone won't do it. 
A big funder of this ballot initiative, Phoenix businessman David Tedesco, helped use his expertise evaluating companies to figure out which firm could manage the paid staff. It's not the cleanest, most white shoe bunch of companies that are out there doing this. We wanted to work with a very high quality group that we felt we could trust. He helped find a Texas firm. The resulting signature forms have to be super precise, with signers listing the address they had used to register to vote. Some get challenged. The matter got to Arizona's Supreme Court, which confirmed there were plenty enough to get this on the November ballot. I was dancing around the living room. My husband made fun of me. (laughs) Crafting these initiatives takes legal advice. Patrick Llewellyn at the Campaign Legal Center in Washington believes this one will stand up. Prop 211 would not stop anyone from speaking and would not limit the amount of money anyone could spend on elections. Instead, Prop 211 ensures that when big political spenders spend big money to influence Arizona voters, those voters have real transparency about where that money is really coming from. And the biggest ingredient may be persistence. I'm just a stubborn person. Terry Goddard is former Arizona Attorney General and leader of the Prop 211 campaign to require that big corporate and individual donors, $5,000 or more, disclose their names when giving campaign money through an intermediary, a type of nonprofit that does political work. Persistence because this is the fourth time they've tried this. One time the money dried up. Ironically, the financial contributor that we were depending on uh, wrote us kind of sheepishly and said, well, I... I believe in dark money. I do a lot of it. In 2018, too many signatures were invalidated, and that was that. Again, two years later, but pandemic. You have to get a live signature. It has to be person to person. The circulator has to observe the signer in the process of signing. Now it's the fourth go-around, and when they got the signatures verified... I felt like I could exhale... Becky Daggett is helping with Prop 211 even as she runs for mayor of Flagstaff, a nonpartisan post. And know that these years of organizing and collecting signatures had paid off. But now it's all eyes on November 8th. And even if voters go for this, it ain't over till it's over till it's over. Kathy Herod runs a conservative nonprofit in Arizona that's allowed to contribute to campaigns. If 211 passes, I certainly expect a constitutional challenge. While the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia once wrote that allowing anonymous donations isn't, quote, the home of the brave, Justice Clarence Thomas writes about cancel culture and is against disclosure. I think this current court is concerned about individual freedom and the right of free speech. Tomorrow, it's not just Arizona working on campaign finance disclosure. All of our secret money, public influence coverage is flowing onto marketplace.org. When a stock index falls 20% from a recent high, it's a bear market for the Nasdaq. It's now the second time this year it's gone bear after dropping 1.1% yesterday. This morning, Nasdaq futures are up 5 tenths percent, S&P futures up 2 tenths percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Insperity, providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. And by ReliaQuest, protecting the largest companies against cyber attacks. ReliaQuest combines OpenXDR technology with security expertise to make security possible. ReliaQuest.com. 
and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement, income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. Remember the Biden administration had brokered a deal to avert a nationwide freight rail strike? Well, not so fast. Workers at the third largest railroad union have rejected a tentative contract. The company's offered a 24% raise and bonuses, but working conditions remain big issues. Here's Marketplace's Lily Jamali. Top-tier railroads have cut almost 30% of jobs just over the last six years. That's part of a wider shift aimed at making the industry more efficient. But the smaller workforce has put pressure on rail employees still on the job, according to Sandra Dearden, CEO of High Road Consulting, which specializes in transportation and logistics. The railroads have responded to the labor shortage by penalizing people for taking off sick and going to the doctor and so forth. The Association of American Railroads says scheduling concerns are partially addressed in the recent tentative agreement brokered with the Biden administration's help. Workers want guarantees of more flexibility with sick leave and better working conditions. The signs have until next month to avoid a strike that, by industry estimates, could cost the economy as much as $2 billion a day. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. And I'm David Brancaccio. It's our morning report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In your forecast, sunny and low 70s today, cloudy and upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, around 70, with a chance of rain. Showers are also likely on Friday. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. President Biden wants to bring supply chains back to the United States. He says it's good for jobs and national security. We've seen what happens when we become dependent on other countries for essential goods. Well, a few years ago, China's President Xi Jinping said almost exactly the same thing. He launched China's dual supply chain strategy. Did it work? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.